This Tractor Time podcast is proud to be sponsored by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers and homesteaders. BCS is often mistaken for being just a rototiller, but with its gear-driven transmissions and dozens of professional quality implements, they truly make superior pieces of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy, where small farms are a way of life, BCS two-wheel tractors will exceed the standards of quality and durability you expect of your agriculture equipment. With PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, chippers, shredders, snow throwers, even a utility trailer and a high-pressure irrigation pump, BCS America can supply tools you need to get jobs done. Even on large farms where a four-wheeled tractor is a necessity, BCS two-wheel tractors will tackle jobs that simply can't be done right or safely with the larger machines, from mowing steep slopes and along pond banks to working soil in high tunnels and hoop houses. Check out bcsamerica.com to find their full lineup of tractors and attachments and watch videos of BCS in action. That's bcsamerica.com. We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Welcome to Tractor Time, brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ryan Slaybaugh. I'm lucky enough to be the GM and publisher of Acres USA, and very lucky enough to sit down and produce our 25th episode of Tractor Time. Uh, thanks again to BCS America for being the sponsors of today's program and for making this possible. Today's guest, I met Fred Provenza, a professor emeritus in the Department of Wildland Resources at Utah State University at our annual conference last December in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, we talked a bit about farming and soil in the corner of some hotel uh, lobby, but in all honesty, uh, we actually talked more about our common hobby of skiing and winter sports. Um, and when it came time to scheduling guests for this year's program, I knew I needed to have Fred on the show so we could actually talk about our day jobs and his uh, lifetime of research into animal and human health. It's fascinating stuff. I know I say that every episode. It's true. Uh, so today's guest, if you don't know, uh, Fred Provenza. He's a renowned animal behaviorist. He spent his academic career researching how animals respond to an intricately tuned system of flavor feedback relationships. In other words, he knows how animals can instinctively seem to know what foods they need to stay alive and healthy. And then he asks the questions, what about us humans? Do we possess the same wisdom? Uh, he wrote about all that in a new book from Chelsea Green called Nourishment, What Animals Can Teach Us About Rediscovering Our Nutritional Wisdom. Uh, you can find it from the Acres USA bookstore as well, but that is not why we're here. We're going to get into that book, uh, but more importantly, we're going to use that book to talk about larger health, health issues and how our own bodies and own biology can often defy us and how they can tell us also exactly what we need to know. We're going to cover that and a lot more in this episode of Tractor Time, brought to you by Acres USA, sponsored by BCS America. Uh, we recorded this interview with Fred Provenza on Wednesday, January 23rd, 2019, via phone. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks again for tuning in to Tractor Time. Fred Provenza, welcome to Tractor Time today. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Happy to be here. Uh, where are you talking to us today? Where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Ennis, Montana. Ennis, Montana. Cold, snowy Ennis, Montana. And what uh, pulls you to Montana today? Well, my wife and I live in Ennis, and what pulled us to Ennis is we have a son and daughter-in-law that live about an hour's drive north of us here. And so we, uh, in the orbits we have left on this planet, we want to spend more time with them and with our daughter when she comes to, to visit us, getting the family together. So that's why we're here in Ennis. I love it. That sounds great. I was uh, There's an old Anthony Bourdain episode when he's in Montana. He says, if you ever wonder where the phrase Purple Mountain Majesty came from, you need to go to Montana and learn about that. So I, uh, that always stuck with me. Yeah, it's absolutely the case. Ennis is at the north end of the Madison uh, range of mountains, which is a beautiful Purple Mountain Majesty kind of range. We're about an hour's drive um, north of West Yellowstone, so we're in some beautiful, beautiful country here. Well, good. Well, I'll ask our readers to close their eyes and imagine they're sitting next to you while we're talking today uh, with the mountains. But uh, uh, to get started today, I wanted to read a couple sentences um, from your book, Nourishment, that came out from Chelsea Green Publishing. 
Um, it's a beautiful passage in the middle of the book that I thought might help us get to know you a little bit more as we start the program and put some of the more research that we'll talk about uh, later on in the program into context. Um, so I, I'm going to give it a shot uh, and do my Fred Provenza impersonation. But um, you wrote, When I'm in the high country, the cultural bonds that can easily muddle my physical and spiritual being with all the daily doing dissolve into the illusions they are. Here, I entered a state of authenticity as the chatter created by doing dissolves into being. This is a dimension of heaven. I feel the artist in every quirk in the galaxy. I understand why monks throw off civilized life to dwell in seclusion in places like this. In a word, this is meditation. I can sit for hours quietly absorbing the beauty that surrounds me. I often see rabbits sitting quietly for long periods in our woodlot. One sat on our deck an entire day without moving. I wonder if they too are in meditation, if they too feel the at-oneness. Uh, it's a heck of an attempt to try to describe that feeling we get when we go into nature and, and why some of us are called into nature and why uh, many of us feel better as stewards of nature and not destroyers of it. Um, can you talk, connect the dots a little bit about your background and uh, uh, your research and what you do today and, and how nature plays into all this and why this is so important to you? I don't think you could have picked a better passage, Ryan, than that one, actually, to, to capture what, that, what the book is about for me and why, why, I, wrote, why I wrote the book. Um, it's, it's so much about the mystery and wonder of the visit to this planet and, uh, and, and the sense that we are, for me anyway, in a dimension of heaven. If we just sit back and think and look at the beauty of, of, of nature and, and how amazing it is, and for me, that's uh, always just resonated so much from when I was a tiny kid. I was just fascinated, fascinated by wild animals, by the landscapes. Um, and so it was a natural for me to go to Colorado State University and, and uh, enroll in wildlife biology program, which I just I loved all that we were learning about soils, plants, animals, ecology, interrelationships. At the same time, I was working on a ranch in Colorado and absolutely loved everything we were doing there. It was uh, a uh, smallish place, I guess, by today's standards, maybe 750, 800 acres, very diverse in terms of the animals that were there. We had flocks of sheep, cattle. We had hogs for our own use, a few goats, and we grew alfalfa and a variety of different crops. So. You know, all of my early experiences were were of that in natural uh, settings and just loving to hunt and fish and, and the ranch life. I, I wasn't born and raised on a ranch, but absolutely, absolutely loved everything out there. And so, um, but during those years, so I got a degree in wildlife biology uh back in 1973 but i knew i wasn't going to be in wildlife biology i don't know how i just i knew that that wouldn't be what i would would do as a career and i didn't know what I, uh, to do so i went back to the ranch uh henry deluca i talk about in the book henry and his wife rose um were were old by then they were born in 1900 and so <clears throat> they they needed somebody to run the ranch i said i'd do that uh, not permanently, but, but for a couple of years. It gave me time just to sit back and do more reflecting, and, but, but be working out there year-round on the place and, and running the place. And it was during those years, I don't know why, I just thought research would be interesting. I would be really interesting to do research, so ended up then going, uh, finding a, a, a university, Utah State University, where I could go to grad school and just absolutely loved studying plants and animals and the things that we were learning about those relationships. And, uh, you know, 40, 50 years later, that's, that's a career. And uh, just really feel uh, very, very, um, I don't know what the right word is, lucky, privileged, whatever it was, to be able to have been involved in, in the kind of research that gets discussed in nourishment, uh, the kind of research we did with cattle, sheep, goats, and bison, and elk, and different kind of wild birds and mammals and so forth, and then uh, being able to, to try to link that 
what we did research-wise with those animals in with humans and, uh, you know, trying to say what, what could we learn from, from these animals. Uh, and that, that may seem a strange, a strange kind of question. You know, what, what really can a housewife in Minneapolis learn from a goat, for <laughs> instance? You know, what's the relationship there? And at the surface, I, I, I certainly see why one would, would say that. But one of the things that key things I think that we did in the research that we did over, over 40 year period was to rather than describe what animals were eating and where they were going in, in environments, which there'd been a lot of work done with that with cattle, sheep and goats around the country and around the world and with wildlife species as well. What we did was to try to say, why are they doing that? Why, why do um, goats eat this thing and avoid that thing? And same with, with all the other creatures. Why do they go where they go? And it's the why part that I think fundamentally links us, Ryan, with everything from insects to, uh, to domestic animals and wild animals to, to uh, right on up to, to we human beings. It, it's that accent on why that really gets a common kind of thread that goes through it all. I, I, I like that a lot. Well, let's, let's get into the why. Um, certainly, uh, it, and I'm probably going to over-summarize the what we're talking about here. But basically, in your book, you're talking about we have the answers built inside us to a lot of our nutrition questions and problems. Um, but we need to lit. We we've created clutter around those voices, and it's not as clear as it used to be when all of our food supplies were local, for the most part, and when we only had the choices of things that we could see out there and choose to eat from. So. Uh, uh, did I get the what right pretty close, if I was going to say? Yes, you absolutely, you got, you got the what right, <laughs> and, and the implications of where that goes from that what, you're, you're right on target. So, right. So, yeah, so that, I guess it, it begs the question. So, um, you know, if animals, are, are animals better at listening to those inner voices than humans are at this point? And is, is, is that one of the things we can learn from them? I think so. I think that they are. I think you could start with the, with the wild animals, um, whether it's an insect or bird or a mammal or whatever, a fish or a mammal, whatever it is, or a plant for that matter. I think that they are of necessity very much in tune with that or they wouldn't be surviving. So I think they they are definitely attuned to that. Domestic animals, depending on how we've raised them and what we do with them, I think certainly they can be in tune with that, but some of the ways that we um, rear them and the things that we do with them as a part of management may make them less in tune with that. And then I think we human beings, given what's happened with the food systems and uh, the way that's changed over time, I think we've gradually become dumbed down to the point and there are a lot of traps in the in the human food systems that have obscured this wis this basic wisdom that bodies have had forever. I mean, when you think at the modern modern disciplines, and this is in no way disparaging them, but whether it's pharmaceutical industry or medical industry or biochemistry or you know any of the scientific disciplines where that are trying to study human beings, I think we need a humility there to realize that the body was the first one of any of those things. The body was the first biochemist, the body was the first physiologist, the body was the first nutritionist. What we need to think about is how do we enable that um, in, in nowadays? How, how would a human being enable that? And there are three Three facets to that that I think, looking back over the years of, of what we studied, um, that really are important, that get to the why. Um, I, you could, I see them as three legs to a stool, and if any one of those legs is broken, you're not going to get a really functional kind of nutritional wisdom in the system. And so when you look at wildlife, wild species all three legs are really there or they don't don't they can't make it domestics it depends on how they're being handled and then with humans i think it's fair to say we we've, we've broken all three of those legs so let me take just just uh, 
briefly here and and describe those three legs and uh and then then we can you know we can go from there with with questions but the first leg I'll, I'll talk about and it's the one that's probably least least obvious is this whole notion of what i refer to as flavor feedback relationships in the book and we studied that backwards and forwards inside and out over over a 40 year period and when we first started that, and I won't backtrack to what how we got started on that, we can if you want later on, but when we first started on that, uh, to realize that what's happening inside the body um, with our different organ systems, you know, our heart, mm-hmm. our lungs, our liver, our, and, and that includes the microbiome that folks are so interested in, in nowadays, that those, those, um, organ systems are feeding back to change our liking for food as a function of need. And it's easy for me to say that, but I think to unpack it, to really realize that um, that that's changing liking as a function of the needs that the cells have, that the organ systems that those cells are a part of and that the microbiome have, is, is really a fundamental part of, of this wisdom. And without going into great details, we know those feedbacks come from hormones, from neurotransmitters, from peptides, and uh, that that is what's altering liking as a function of need. And all creatures have that. We still have that as well. That, that gets hijacked, though, for instance, through processed foods, mm-hmm. through when we add, for instance, we, we enrich and fortify processed foods, all those are ways that we end up hijacking those systems that cause us then not to not to like so much really wholesome foods that that would would which is the second branch of this this stool um, you know having a variety of really wholesome foods available to us um, fruits and vegetables and nuts and and meats and so forth there, there's been a real breakdown in in the way that we have um, created those foods nowadays. Even the wholesome foods, uh, we know that the nutritional value of those foods has declined over the last 50 years. And so we've, on the one hand, we've incentivized these highly processed foods by the ways that we've, we've put them together, you know, basically very high in refined carbohydrates, which are provide a blast of energy, which the body likes that, and then we fortify them with, with various kinds of, of other nutrients, that really sets up what I refer to as a feedback trap. Mm-hmm. We get trapped in that, and if, if, you're, um, if you start on that when you're in the womb, if that's the diet that your mother is eating, you're really caught in a trap from conception, basically. We know, for instance, the fetal taste system is fully functional during the last trimester of gestation. So the foods that mom's eating, are the flavors of those get into the amniotic fluid. They change how we develop our, our morphology, how we're built, our physiology, how our body functions. All those are influenced by these experiences that start even in the womb, and then they continue with mother's, you know, if mother's nursing, the flavors of the foods that she's eating is getting into her milk, and then mother as a model, what she presents. So that's the third leg of the stool, this whole social cultural part. So briefly then, flavor feedback relationships, the availability of wholesome alternative foods, and the social cultural part are all integral to creating a nutritional wisdom of the body. And if we break any of those links, um, we're not going to have a really functional kind of nutritional wisdom uh, elaborated. And so it's easy then for people in the human, you know, that study human food selection, nutrition, and health to argue that really what basis can you argue that there's nutritional wisdom? Look look around you, the, the epidemic of obesity, diabetes, diet-related diseases, that doesn't speak to the fact that we have nutritional wisdom and unless a person steps back i think and thinks about the three legs to the stool and how integral each of those are to a functional nutritional wisdom 
that's ultimately linked in very intimate ways with the landscapes that we inhabit, and we've broken those linkages as well as a culture, um, of course you're not going to see nutritional wisdom. And of course you can say that, well, humans obviously don't have it. And as other folks have said too, well, the animals in our care, the domestic animals in our care, they obviously don't have nutritional wisdom. They lost that 10 years ago, 10,000 years ago through the process of domestication. And of course, nourishment argues the opposite of all of that. It steps back and says, no, that's still an integral part of the systems, and we need to mend these linkages that we've broken um, with the landscapes we inhabit, the foods and the landscapes we inhabit. Makes, thank you. That was a, uh, I got a few questions, but that, that's really interesting. Um, you wrote in the book, and I think it was a bear that you were writing about, was the, was the animal that um, will really understand their native habitats, they'll really understand how to survive, but then that first introduction into a dumpster or into a restaurant throwing away their food changes that bear fundamentally. And unfortunately, we know what happens to those bears is they get, that becomes their food source and they, they've lost that connection to their local habitat. Uh, so my first question is really, what, what changes in that bear physically or biologically when they taste that dumpster food or they get that easy food source? Um, is, is there actual a biological change happening in front of them or in them at that time? Yes, great question. Absolutely the case. And the change that's happening in the bear is no different from the change that's happening in the human being. Um, you know, if, you, if we think about the nutrient that we and other animals uh, need most each day, it's energy. We, we need a lot of energy to keep, us, to keep us going. And so bodies are really attuned to that. And uh, the bear getting into a garbage dump that has a, a, a lot of uh, readily available energy sources in that dump is not different from the human that uh, is first exposed to, to processed foods that are high in refined carbohydrates. The flavor of that food, which the bear may never have had before, or, or may have, but may ne likely never would have had before, is immediately reinforced with feedback from that blast of energy that it gets. So from the, uh, from the different cells and organ systems as that food is, is quickly digested, there's a very strong positive kind of feedback that comes that's immediately elevating liking for the, for the flavor of the food. Ooh, this tastes really good. I like this food. And so, you know, it starts with that. And then uh, as you go to the bears having their offspring and the offspring learning that this is where we forage, uh, you create a whole culture that revolves around those those dumps, which was certainly the case in Yellowstone National Park. And of course, the Craigheads recognized that through their many years of, of research that, look, we've got a bunch of welfare bears here. They're hooked on, on, on these foods. And I remember having long discussions many years after the Craigheads had done their work with park, park um, people who were, were involved in, in uh, administering Yellowstone National Park, and they were talking about how, you know, those bears had totally lost their linkages then with the landscapes. When they, when they cold turkey shut those, those dumpsters down, you know, the bears, all these behaviors, there's such a huge component of learning. Animals don't just know. They learn these behaviors as I say, it starts really in the in the womb, but they learn these, and when, when they're cold turkey, now they they really have to relearn that. It's not a part of the culture again, and you go right down the line, it's the same thing for, for we humans. We've um, we've we've gotten onto the, the highly processed food bandwagon, and uh, so we've we've lost that knowledge of, of, of wholesome foods, and, and then you know, the way foods are, are grown nowadays, including the meats that we get, um, it, the, the nutritional complexity of those, not only the energy, protein, minerals, and those sorts of things, but this whole area I get into on these, what I refer to as these secondary compounds or phytochemicals, it's this whole array of these tens of hundreds of thousands of compounds 
that originally people didn't know what roles they played in plants. They, they were thought of as waste products, actually. You know, this is the waste once plants produce these energy, protein, minerals, or, you know, developed. And, um, but we've come, and then they were, during my career, thought of as secondary compounds. But what, what people came to realize is these compounds are absolutely, fundamentally essential for the health of plants. And for everything that plants touch in the environment, below ground, all those organisms in the in the soil, and then as that links with, with herbivores and human beings, those compounds have huge health benefits. And that's that's been a shift in our thinking. I gave a talk at a highly prestigious conference year before last, a Gordon conference, mm-hmm. and I was pointing out it's it's a conference on plant herbivore interactions, and I was just making the point that look in high concentrations, certainly these compounds are feeding deterrents. They they cause animals to limit how much of any one plant that they'll eat, which is is good. They moderate they moderate responses to the environment. But at moderate concentrations, when animals eat a huge variety of different plants that contain these compounds, they have huge health benefits. So everything from heart and um, liver and lungs to um, so cardiovascular system, cancer, all the hallmarks of cancer at a cellular level, when cells have access to these compounds, they can use them to, 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 to um, mitigate, to, to decrease the, the effects that can happen relative to cancer. They just, they have huge, huge health benefits. That, uh, it, it, I appreciate you saying that because you had an interesting chapter in your book right off, off the front um, about Clara's kids, and I think you were kind of hitting at this earlier a little bit. Um, they really talked about, um, you know, how innate some of our food choices are as a young people and we, how m- much more complicated they get when we enter, uh, you know, modern man and all our toys, I guess, and all our technology uh, behind the food system. Uh, I know that I don't want to give away the whole book, but would you want to... Uh, would you be able to quickly summarize kind of that, the the Claris kids experiment that happened and kind of how that leads into livestock as well? Absolutely. Uh, to me, those are just fabulous, fabulous studies. And realize, as you know, she did those a hundred years ago. So Clara was um, was working in an orphanage with these kids given up um, for adoption. So they came in basically shortly after birth, and. Uh, she, be, she became or maybe was always interested in food selection, nutrition, and health, and where does that come from? And so she devised this, this study. Uh, it's hugely long by today's standards. It's off the charts by today's standards. So she, she ended up with, I think, roughly 15, 16 children that were involved in this study, and she did it over, over a six-year period. And basically, she had 34 different foods that were available seasonally, different times of the year, and um, basically pretty wholesome foods, all of them. Uh, um, And so the children, day in, day out, were simply given free choice of a variety of those different foods. Um, And the the people who were involved in the study were instructed in no way to, to... try to encourage the kids to eat one thing or another. Just allow them to eat what they eat. And there were pediatricians that were involved in the study, monitoring the health of these children. And uh, what they found was that the children uh, selected diets that, that absolutely led to top health. The pediatrician said they'd never seen kids that were any healthier than these kids. They were the healthiest subset that they, they'd, they'd ever seen. Um, it was so interesting because at first, when when the child children were introduced to the foods, they sample. You know, they would try mm-hmm. trial and error. They didn't have mom as a model, so they they would try different foods. Uh, but after after a bit, they would come to to eat certain foods um, more than other foods. But as Clara pointed out, no two children ever selected the same diet. Never did. And no child ever selected the same food from day to day. They would vary what, what they ate. But every child ended up eating a diet that was absolutely what that child needs, which relates then to the next chapter in the book, which title is No Two Alike. 
And we know every one of us is so different. We can be identified by our fingerprint. A bloodhound can track us by our odors. When you look inside of us, the way that we're built and the way that we function is equally different. And so because we were in form and function, we're different. We need differently. Our, our needs are different. And that becomes expressed then when we're given a choice of wholesome foods that uh, we, we select differently, and that's a function of need. I talk about a book that was published, I think, in about 1956, its first publication by a fellow named Roger Williams. The book is titled Biochemical Individuality, and it's, just, it's a fabulous book. It was updated over time. It's not the most <laughs> engrossing book to read, but what he's showing in that book over and over again is how much creatures of all sorts, including human beings, how much we differ uh, biochemically, and then how different we are in foods we select and in our needs for energy, for proteins, for vitamins, for minerals. He wasn't talking in those days about all these uh, phytochemicals these, uh, that I talk about a bunch in nourishment, but that would be the, the very same thing for that. And uh, so Claire just did, did fabulous, fabulous, um, fabulous studies. And, you know, I let me give you a little story backstory about how I learned about Clara Davis. There was a Canadian author who was reading some of the research that we were doing that I'll just briefly mention here in a minute. And he sent me a copy of a book that he just published. And he asked me if I if I knew about Clara Davis. And I said, no, I didn't. And he said, well, here's some papers that she published back in the day. And what he was reading that we'd done was some studies where we had cattle that we were finishing. We were taking them during the last two months, putting them on finishing rations, and then we were killing them, and we were looking at body composition and, you know, grades and yield grades and those kind of things. But here was the study we did. We know that cattle are, t uh, are typically finished on what's referred to as total mixed rations, mm -hmm. where nutritionists, um, based on their knowledge of, of needs, they formulate a ration that's then of several ingredients, that's then ground and mixed together, so animals can't, can't have much choice to select. So we had one group that was being fed a total mixed ration designed by a nutritionist that we were working with. We had another group that was offered the five ingredients that went into that ration, so alfalfa, corn silage, barley, um, corn, uh, th those kind of things. We just gave them free choice of that. And we, we published that, and we were pointing out that the animals that were given a choice ate less food than the animals fed the total mixed ration. And we're arguing that's the case because when you don't have a choice, animals will over-ingest to meet needs for certain nutrients. When they get choices, and the more choices they have, they can select what they need as individuals. So the animals ate less when they were given a choice than the ones on the total mixed ration, which means it cost less to finish those animals. But we saw exactly, and here's where it was stunning, it was almost like we plagiarized some of Claire Davis's words, because we were saying no two individuals ever selected the same diet, no individual ever selected the same foods from day to day. It was, it was, it was so interesting to read what she had written back in the 1920s and to think, oh my goodness, you know, we're, she's studying uh, these young people and we're studying... Um, livestock, and yet we're, we're coming to the same conclusions and saying the same things that relate to what Roger Williams is writing about in biochemical individuality. And he concludes that, you know, and I'm not saying this is something that, uh, but he, he concludes that, you know, there's probably no need for, for the whole discipline of nutrition, and I'm not saying that, that, that that's the case. I think we've learned a tremendous amount from studies nutritionists uh, have done about how the needs for nutrients and so forth. But he, he was getting the big picture that if you have wholesome foods and if you have a culture that can, can guide a young person, the, the body knows what it needs. It, it'll, it'll figure that out for each individual. So we're, we're all coming to the, the, the same conclusions. 
but from you know from studying different different creatures and and different ways that's where what i said at the beginning when you get into trying to understand why why is it working the way it's working you really you really align with everything from insects to to human beings uh, i'm going to digress here quickly too you know we we did a lot of studies of self medication too um, and you can think of medication in two ways. You can think, one, prophylactically, and I think when animals are exposed to a huge array of different foods on landscapes, you know, when they're eating a, a diverse array, the, the, the landscape really becomes the, a pharmacy, a nutrition center and a pharmacy. And so um, that's, that's a really important part of this, this whole story as well. But... Um, so you've got the prophylactic or eating a variety of foods that, that enables health. Mm -hmm. But then if animals do become sick, we were showing they can learn to eat different foods to self-medicate. And uh, that, that becomes really a, a one-two part of this, this, whole, of this whole story of the importance of, of diversity in the diet and the ability to, to, maintain, to maintain health of creatures. That's, um, yeah, you know, it, it, it makes so much sense, uh, but it's so against uh, what we think of as, as healthy today at some point, that we're, we're looking for that, that silver bullet, that book, that article, that one thing that will make us feel great and make us feel better. Uh, it seems really daunting when you think about each one of us individually have to figure out our own health system and our own dietary system. Uh, what, you know, if somebody's listening to this going, there's no way, there's no way, you know, can, give me an easier solution. You know, what, is there a way to develop that system, um, you know, and, and how best would a, a person today try to develop their own health system uh, at this point? Yeah, excellent, excellent question. Um, you know, I think, and come back over and over again to this idea of, of eating wholesome foods and just, um, uh, this is going to sound simplistic in a way uh, if you're if you're hooked on on processed foods that's a challenge in and of itself to, to get off of that you know you can find both sides to the argument but there's certainly the case to be made that that compounds like sugar are addicting so it's it's not so easy if you've been born and raised on processed foods to just jump off that bandwagon so i acknowledge that but you know where they where they worked with people, and I know of examples where they 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 restrict the foods that they get over a couple months period to wholesome foods, mm -hmm. uh, fruits, vegetables, nuts, um, and then meats that are coming from. Uh, in my mind, the 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 people that are are doing finishing animals on really diverse plant species, that meat and fat. And dairy that comes from that is quite different from from total mixed ration kind of of things. And I, I certainly developed those arguments in the book and in a paper that's just going to be published here right away in a journal called Frontiers in Nutrition. So I think that idea of wholesome foods is really integral to to all of this. Then then you realize, well, okay, if we've selected, if we've ended up with fruits and vegetables that aren't so nutritionally rich anymore, as, as people point out, then you, you need to start to think, well, what, how, how do you get that richness into the foods? And an important part of that, that you guys at, at Acres are doing such a great job of, I think, of promoting and that many people are talking about, it's healthy soil, mm -hmm. soil that has really good fungal to, to microbial ratios, that enable um, uh, that relationship between the, the fungi, uh, being able to tap into, into uh, minerals that are in the parent material and provide those to the plant at the same time the plant is providing energy to those. Um, you know, thinking about where, what varieties uh, of plants are, are we looking at here and, you know, trying uh, in a lot of cases, I think, to go back to varieties that haven't been selected simply for growth at the expense of phytochemical richness. Mm -hmm. um, so, so trying to think about 
the soils that plants are being raised on, the way they're being raised, the um, the uh, the varieties that we're utilizing, all that becomes a really important part of it. People like Joe Robinson have written books, Eating on the Wild Side, mm-hmm. to try to help guide people. But really, you know, a person has to has to become their own um, their you really have to look out out for yourself because just because you eat fruits and vegetables out of the grocery store doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have as much as much um, phytochemical richness as as they might. And so Joe Robinson talks about that. And you know what, my wife and I are doing now here in Innes, Montana, and uh, you know we've always loved to raise our own our own fruits and vegetables and all, all those kind of things. And so we're do we we raise our own vegetables, we raise our own herbal gardens, vegetable, herbal, and even medicinal gardens. And you know, in the one chapter in the book, you talk about you know it's possible to raise that whole that whole area of of herbal medicine and the value of that. And I know, you know, if it, when we come from a background that that's been strictly. Um, Kind of, you know, more more the pharmaceutical and the, and the nutrition and and that that traditional background, it can really seem scary and 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 voodoo kind of stuff. But when a person takes the time to try to understand how important a role those things can play in our health, both prophylactically and therapeutically. You come to realize that that it's not just ooey ooey kind of stuff. So there's the whole plant side, and you know I think growing your own your own foods and learning about that that it's such an education, and and it can change your whole your whole way of thinking about the system, getting your hands in the soil and working with that and seeing things grow. And then eating these these things. So that's one part. And then raising your own animals. And I, I realize that's not possible for a lot of people. But at the very least, um, you know, trying to think about sourcing sourcing animals from people who um, who are really doing a good job. I spent the morning talking with a man by the name of Glenn Elzinga, and he um, he ranches over here in Idaho. And it's phenomenal what he does. You know this book that you, that Acres published that Michelle Mire and I edited, the the art and practice of shepherding, uh, tapping the wisdom of French French herders. Um, that's all about how how those herders work with animals, meal in, meal out throughout the day. The shepherds are learning from the the flocks. The flocks are learning from the shepherds. It's a relationship. But the way they're able to utilize those landscapes to improve the health of soil, of plants, of biodiversity for a wide array of different creatures, but the the quality of the meat and dairy that comes off of those. And when you go over there and you walk those landscapes with those shepherds, and and then you see in those little dairies where they turn them out each day and then they milk them and they make the cheese, it's a fabulous deal. And we know from studies people have done biochemical complexity of that is is vastly greater than an animal that's just being being fed a total mixed ration so glenn is doing that with cattle under extensive landscapes he's the only one i know that that's doing that but like he's telling me today we've got 500 species of plants up here on the landscape and he said day in day out when you're out there with those cattle and you're watching what they're doing they're including all of those, a huge array of those in their diets as you go across time. So the meat from his animals that are finished on that kind of a, of a, of a diet is vastly different from something that comes from a total mixed ration or even from a pasture that has a handful of species. There's just, there's no comparison, uh, in terms of what's, what's getting into meat and fat and, and milk. Uh, one versus the other, and this paper I mentioned is really, really exploring those sort of things. So, so it's long-winded, but it's about trying to to source the the animal products that a person eats from from um, people who are really exposing their animals to a vast array of plants. And Glenn was telling me he gave a talk to 200 ranchers here just just a week or so ago. 
and they were asking him, well, you know, how do you, how do you doctor animals up on those landscapes? How do you deal with, with different kinds of issues that come up? And he said, I can tell you honestly, I've never had to doctor an animal up here on these landscapes. This is the pharmacy for these animals. They're getting this vast array of foods that's helpful for them. We're moving them on a, on a daily basis, so we're not ever uh, crowding them into places and, uh, and, and doing things that, that would lead to poor health. We're, we're doing things that encourage health, and we, we honestly don't have, have sick animals. So that, that whole notion of, of alternatives, availability of alternatives and biodiversity in the diets, it scales up from what the animals in our care are eating to to our diets as well, and and the quality of that food. And so, you know, it really it really is a thing of buyer beware, I think, and of of having to do the work um, to to ensure the health of of ourselves and of our families. And uh, and in saying all this too, Ryan, I'm not placing blame. I think things happen incrementally, and and. And we don't even realize um, where we where we where we are. But it seems to me that that there's a lot that's known nowadays about what has happened and what's led to this lack of nutritional wisdom in us as a species. And there's there's these kind of things then that we can do to, to regain that and to get us back on a, on a healthier track. And that ties in not only then with, with human health, but it ties in with this whole issue of, of the health of the environment and the health of the planet and what each of us can do by growing our own foods, using less resources to grow lawns, for instance, and thinking about what that what the costs are to that as opposed to if if we put much more into native plant species and then growing our own vegetable herbal medicinal kind of gardens that scales up to this whole issue of climate change and being able to what we can do to help uh, even at our individual little little places um to get more more shrubs to get more trees uh into the landscape. My wife Sue and I have planted probably 150 different berry-producing native shrubs that, that provide fruit for us, that provide fruit for, for different species, and that fix carbon, you know, and, and that create um, great kind of soil. So I think each one of us can think of that. And then as Glenn says, on his landscape, He's working with 10,000 acres, you know, and they're, the things that they're doing to reclaim riparian areas, to get woody plant species, which we know are very important in terms of fixing carbon and, and building up um, systems. It, it scales up then from food selection and nutrition for soil microbes, herbivores, omnivores, and carnivores below ground, same thing above ground, and right up to, to we human beings. That I that's a lot, and I appreciate you getting through all that. Uh, it, 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 and I'm going to be trite here, but it just seems like uh, it, it's just such a basic human nature that um, whether it's how we manage forests or how we manage our food supply or how we manage our livestock, that uh, we love loving things to death and overmanaging things and complicating things in ways we don't need to complicate them. And I think uh, to me, that's really been the lesson in my environmental uh, journalism and, and throughout my career is just seeing how. Uh, we think we're doing so good by protecting the environment and, and when it should be, you know, if we just trust the environment, the environment will protect us just fine. And we, it, it's a long road to get back, uh, even though it's simple to say, it just seems like that's, that's really hard. Um, and as you write about the book, especially when so much of our population is disconnected from nature and has never actually spent any time there, quite honestly. So uh, just expecting them to get it is, is, is a big challenge, you know, at some point. Uh, to do that. Um, so I'm, I'm belaboring the point, but uh, there are some positives here, I assume, um, you know, that's coming out here. We've outlined a lot of the challenges and some of the things that we, as a, as a culture, and I like that word that you're using, you know, how do we create a better food culture in our world? Uh, it, and it seems like we have a lot of learning to do. So I'm actually going to read another quote that you have in the book um, to try to segue into this segment of how do we learn how to do this. Um, you said, 
I worked for many years to learn how to teach, but I never really got there until the end of my career. With time, I came to realize I had to transform. I had to transcend my own imaginary fears and boundaries. I had to learn to become open and vulnerable in front of a group, to speak from my heart without preconceived notions. That, in turn, enabled the group to do likewise. Uh, and what I got from that is, you know, we have to we have to learn ourselves and teach ourselves how to do this before we ever expect, um, you know, anybody to follow. And and I, especially with environmental causes and food causes, and I'm certainly as guilty as anybody of this. It's so easy to look at corporations and blame them, or it's so easy to look at the neighbor with the big gas guzzling truck and say he's worse than I am. But it's really hard to look at your own life and your own self and go, uh, I need to set the example and live that life before I expect anybody else to change. Um, so I got that. You know, that was a loaded quote, but I, I, I read a lot into that. So, uh, you know, what triggered your epiphany in teaching, I guess, is, is my question. And how did you go about putting that into action? Um, you know, from reading in that section earlier, there, there were several things. But I think I, I experienced five years of depression back in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, and it was such a foreign mindscape to me. I, I had always been so happy-go-lucky and, and so forth, and I won't go into what I speculate maybe all the reasons, but all of a sudden, man, I had to look up to see a worm, and that lasted for five years, and it just really transformed the way I thought about everything. I I just started reading in literatures that I'd never read before and broadening out, um, both, both from a... Uh, from a physical standpoint about this universally reading quantum and relativistic physics and what those guys were going and blowing my mind, just amazing. And then the spiritual part uh, grew for me, all that. But when I came out of that, I never taught a, a course the same way. I thought, you know, every course has to relate to this, this broader, this broader um, you know, the, mis- the beauty, the mystery, the wonder of being on this planet. It, it has to relate to that. And then as we went along more and more, I think what, what happened in me, too, is just the more, the more we studied things, the more I read broadly, just came to appreciate how little I knew about anything, and, but how amazing it was. And that, that what was important was the conversation. The conversation to me became it. And so I thought, and, and I did, didn't want to be the talking head. I'm the professor. You take notes. Then you puke it back to me on a test. You know, it's just like this doesn't work for me anymore. It needs to be about the conversation. And so I really moved in that way to where the classes were dialogue. And they were, they were rigorous classes. It wasn't we just come in here and we'll shoot the breeze for an hour. They were really rigorous. And the students had to be very, very much prepared I won't go into details, but they, they had to be really prepared to come into those classes and participate. But it was so participatory, and it was just stunning um, to see the knowledge, just the knowledge, if you let everybody talk. And that's where creating the environment, so people weren't afraid to speak from their hearts. It was the mind, but it was the heart, too, to speak from the heart, and they weren't worried that somebody's going to attack them and say, well, that's stupid or whatever. You know, it was just, and so we laughed in there, we cried. It was, it was just, it was profoundly moving, but it just made me realize that, you know, it's about the conversation. And I'd thought that for a long time in natural resource and management, management, so controversial throughout all the years I was involved, so much controversy, still so much controversy over whose land, how to use it, what to do with it. But I thought over and over again, you know, it's about the dialogue and it's about us trying to transcend the boundaries that we that we create for whatever different reasons. And that if we can do that, what we're able to accomplish is enormous. And uh, by not relying just on one brain and heart or a handful of them, but by drawing on the, the knowledge of the group, and that was just so... So, so obvious. Um, but it, it did take, you know, you never knew where those conversations were going to go. And it could be everything from the physical to the spiritual to you, you name it. And again, it wasn't just shooting the breeze. I try to emphasize that it, it was it was rigorous. It was about 
It was about transcending boundaries amongst dif- disciplines. Anybody who's been to college knows, you know, if you major in this, why well, you're going to get trained in that. But the the folks across the the campus that are in plant or animal science will never hear about this, and the animals. The folks in natural resource will never hear about the animal science. We cut through all that. We were transdisciplinary because it, in a landscape, it's it's all of that. You know, it's every discipline we know about, and it's about the social cultural part of things. So, so it was really good. But I I had to um, that vulnerable part. You had to or I had to. I, I noticed there was a fear in me, a fear in me for for a lot of years and. And it, it inhibited being able to go there. There were things that I wanted to say that uh, would open up conversation that I was afraid to say and so forth and so on. But anyway, you know, it took a, took a long time to sure. get there. But they were, they were amazing classes. And, and uh, the way the students responded and what they would say about those and how mind-twisting it was, they say, you can't even imagine how mind-twisting it is to come into this class and then to go into other classes where um, it's just the, the traditional, I lecture, you take notes. And, and then I learned from other colleagues that it wasn't always viewed so favorably by my colleagues. You know, <laughs> if you're an upper-level undergraduate, you come in and we teach you what you need to know. And, uh, and I'd gone down a different path. So that's kind of long-winded, but it was, uh, it was a really, really meaningful uh, no. Really meaningful in my life, for sure. I think that's a powerful takeaway. You know, before we expect the world to change, we have to do some introspection and make sure that we're ready to change ourselves. And uh, it sounds like in that circumstance, uh, what an example you set for your students uh, on how to how to be on. You know, and especially when you're asking a lot out of somebody to show some vulnerability, there goes a long way as far as leadership goes. Uh, I really I respect that. Uh, we got about ten more minutes of the podcast. So I was going to try to hammer a couple more questions at you. If you, if you Let me time. add one more thing, yeah, sure. Brian, to that, and then we'll, we'll go right on. And I think once you do that and you set the context in this particular case for that to happen, then everybody opens up from the heart. That's what was so neat, and the knowledge that's in everybody was just it was it was amazing what we were able to to do and to cover compared to just one person up there as a talking head. So I'll let you keep going, but I, I just, it was, it, it's such a key point, I think, that you're raising there. No, I, 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 just to reinforce what you just said, that, you know, when we, we started a community garden here uh, in Greeley um, around our operations and, uh, you know, there was, people were telling us we were kind of crazy that there was no interest here and that there was nobody, that there was nothing like that existed. So why would we even try to do something? And as soon as we built a garden box, we just threw one out there and just to see what would happen. Uh, now we have a community that's working there. And, it, and it, I just know deep down that having this a little more intellectual conversation about our food is something that people are so clamoring for and so want. Um, and we need leaders like yourself, uh, you know, driving this conversation and helping, uh, you know, trigger a conversation because so much um, we we end up we don't have that conversation as often as we talk about football and, and other you know pop culture things. But just talking about food and where we get our food from is uh, uh, it's so much fun to talk to these community members because it's so important and it's so and you know as soon as you talk about somebody's food you get into emotions and you get into what's really important. And so those conversations all of a sudden go to quality of life, community strength, uh, diversity, you know, all sorts of different things that uh, our food, food supply can connect us to. And uh, uh, I will get to a question. Uh, so the, the, the challenges you've outlined. No, let me add one thing, Ryan, sure. just from what, you know, and it's so fabulous when you do what you did, right? I mean, it's so amazing to see that. And, and you just realize the power of, 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 uh, uh, what's a simple act like that, uh, and and what that can do community-wise? It's so that's that's so so revealing, isn't it? It's fantastic. Okay, I'll let you keep going, but I just wanted to reinforce that point you made. I think that's so realizing that is so critical. Uh, and, and I probably just answered my own question to you, but uh, I was really going to ask, you know, you know, from your 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 days teaching and seeing this next generation coming up. Um, you know, we, we obviously know what the challenges are, and, or we, we think we know what the challenges are, and we, we certainly can see them um, out there. Uh, and I ask this question almost every guest on the program, and I love the answers that I get back, um, is, is why have hope? 
you know, why, why keep doing what you're doing after you've outlined all these challenges and all these uh, restrictions and obstacles? Uh, what keeps you positive and what keeps you, keeps you moving forward? I, th- I think it's just uh, the belief that at a fundamental level in, uh, in, in the, the, the individual, um, the uniqueness of the individual and the, uh, and the, the power of the, of, the, of the community to, to do these things and the knowledges that we have. And I, I think, for me, I think what's, what's interesting about hope is hope without action doesn't mean much. But if you can get hope and the energy that goes behind that and then you follow that with action, then I think it becomes really creative within the systems. And, you know, we, the, the world, the, everything around us is changing constantly from the, uh, from the ecological to the social and the cultural and, the, you know, the whole, the environments are constantly changing. But when we engage those environments, <clears throat> when we participate with them, it becomes very, very creative. And I think as human beings, we, if we're allowed to do that, to participate in that, if we're encouraged, that we we figure it out for ourselves because it's kind of in us to to figure that out. But it's to me, it's about relationships, and we know those of us who 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 are married, or even if you're not, relationships with anyone. The quality of that relationship is a function of what we put into it. The more we're willing to invest, the more we get back. Is it rough? It's all, you know. It's always it's always a challenge. My wife and I have been married nearly fifty years now, and we often laugh with some friends that we have that that you know are in their eighties now, and we laugh about. Yeah, there have been hard times. That's absolutely the case. But what's cool is working your way through those, and so. The same thing with environments, you know, and that's where I think we've we've really lost that is is that our our relationships with the environments that ultimately nurture us are are so critical too, and so the hope to me come is is through the actions that that we can take. Um, you know, this whole movement in regenerative agriculture is is so. So uh, encouraging, and to, and you guys, your work at Acres with with all of this, so so fundamentally important. And then I think, okay, how can we now start to engage the broader public with something as simple as growing, you know, growing your own food, sourcing your own food? And you know, there really is some grassroots movements that are taking place, as you pointed out. Of you know, where is my food coming from? And honestly, I, it makes me think of a few years back I was in an airport going somewhere and the lady I was talking with there at the desk had just seen a downer cow you know mm-hmm. and she said oh my gosh you know and it was having this huge impact and you know you think well the more that people see the more it maybe gets them thinking about well where is my food coming from and what am I eating you know and so that may sound strange but all those things of raising awareness and uh and some of the movements that are taking place, not only in agriculture, but people people uh, wanting to know more and more where where their food's coming from. I honestly see climate change too as a blessing and a curse. This whole Anthropocene and climate change, you know, it's a curse in terms of the impacts that we've had on the planet. And I think anybody who's taken the time to read thoughtfully in in the scientific literature or in the broader literature that talks about that, the books that are coming out and stuff, realize we've had a tremendous impact on, on the planet. So it's it's a kind of a curse in that sense, but it's a blessing too, I think, in that it really can raise an awareness that, look, we, we've had these impacts, but then you think of what can be done with regenerative agriculture, uh, with the things that each one of us can do in the way that we, we live our lives goes back to what you say, trying to look at yourself and think about, you know, what can I do to, to help build healthy soil in, in my little yard here and to, to fix carbon, to, to create healthy food? And then what can I do through, through a whole bunch of other ways that, that people point out in books like Project Drawdown and so forth of, 
of what we can do in our own lives. All that gives gives me um, great hope, you know. And uh, but it's got to be hope without action doesn't do anything. We, we it's what we have to have to do. I think. I uh, I like that a lot. Um... I'll, I'll close with a little sentiment. I was speaking with uh, uh, my colleague and predecessor, uh, Fred Walters, today. You know Fred. And he told me, um, he said, uh, I told him I was interviewing you uh, this afternoon, and he stopped and he said, I always thought Fred Provenza was one of the most kind, most intelligent, most thoughtful people in the world. And uh, I just wanted to say I, it made me really excited to spend this hour with you, and I can totally echo his sentiment. Uh, having spent that hour with you. Uh, we didn't get to so many of my questions, Fred. I wanted to talk about microbial life. I wanted to talk about some of these rancher uh, environmental issues. Uh, would you be on again sometime so we can cover that stuff? I'd be happy to, Ryan. And I want to conclude with two thoughts Please here. Do. The questions you've asked and the quotes that you gave, I, I, I'm not saying this just to be nice. I'm so impressed. You, you really... It's not easy, I don't think, to hit the some of the essences of what's in nourishment because it's broad. It's really broad, but you did a, a fabulous job. So that's one thing I want to say. And then Fred Walters and I worked together over, over uh, you know, many years, actually, from having me come speak at Acres, but then on this book, The Art and Science of Shepherding. And I, I have come to feel the same way about Fred. I, I, I think the world of Fred and... Uh, and of all the work that, that you folks at Acres are doing. So I, I, from the heart, I mean that. It's, it's wonderful, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Well, uh, thank you for saying that. It's, a, it's an amazing spot I get to be in, uh, surrounded by all these amazing people. Uh, thank you to our listeners today uh, for hanging with us. Uh, thank you to for, for our guest, Fred Provenza. Uh, he's an author. He's a researcher. He's an outdoors person, and uh, we were really lucky to have him. Uh, for the hour today. Uh, you can learn more about him by ordering his book, Nourishment, from Chelsea Green Publishing or from our Acres USA bookstore. Uh, he speaks every now and then, too, and you can catch him out on the speaker circuit. Uh, are you going to be out there anywhere in the next uh, few months that so people could uh, see you speak, Fred? I am. I'm going to be in Pennsylvania coming up. I'm going to be in Kansas coming up. Yeah, so, so two events coming up right away, and then several throughout the rest of the year as well, right? That, again, was an interview with Fred Provenza recorded on Wednesday, January 23rd, 2019. Special thank you to Fred for making me time. Uh, special treat for our listeners, you can get a free other hour, additional hour, of Fred Provenza, Gabe Brown, and Charles Massey talking from our conference in Louisville, Kentucky last December. Uh, go to AkersUSA.com. That's AkersUSA.com. And search for Fred Provenza, uh, Gabe Brown, Charles Massey. Uh, they'll all come up. Uh, you can find a link to on our blog. Uh, you can catch this podcast on EcoFarmingDaily.com at AkersUSA.com or anywhere podcasts are listened to, including the Apple Store. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to BCS America for hosting, or excuse me, sponsoring today's program. I'm your host, Ryan Slaybaugh, uh, and you're listening to Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture, and our Tractor Time podcast. Thanks again, and have a great week.